Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of information technology and cybersecurity professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider becoming a Security Ledger podcast sponsor. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our regular podcast, which features news, analysis, and discussion of the most important security topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast that highlights your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. Okay. Welcome back to the uh, Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts. I'm your host and I'm the editor-in-chief at the Security Ledger and really thrilled today to be in the studio uh, with Niels Provost, who is an OG in the cybersecurity community and also notable for being a music producer who has really ventured into this synthesis of electronic dance music and cyber. And how could we not talk about that? Niels, welcome to a Security Ledger Podcast. It's, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate the opportunity and think that we're going to have a great conversation. Absolutely. Maybe just start off, though, for our viewers who haven't don't know about you talking about your journey to cyber and how you came to the infosec industry. Yeah, absolutely. All of this for me happened by circumstance. I became system administrator for the physics network at the University of Hamburg. And that was really the first time I got exposed to VMS and, and Unix and all these concepts like internet was still fairly new then. And I discovered that I became very quickly curious how it all works. Ended up in the US at the University of Michigan for a PhD in computer science, where I explored security topics such as honeypots and steganography, which is the art of secretly communicating messages without anybody knowing that you're even communicating. And then images and stuff like that. Yeah, that's right. It was primarily images. And the funny story there is that I was about to present at USNIC security on some paper that got published. And in the meantime, I'd been working on detecting steganographic content at scale on the internet and had started talking about it. And then 9-11 happened and I was in Greece on vacation without really having connectivity to the internet. And we found out about September 11th, we're basically walking by an electronic store that was showing news on the TV. Yeah. And so I decided I would dial up with my laptop to university number in Athens. And I got this request from Air Force Intelligence who wanted all of my research on steganography, which I then provided. But we decided to change my presentation at the conference then on the steganographic work, which was quite interesting. And when I came back to the US, I said, look, I realized that with these intelligence services, it's all a one-way street. You send them stuff, you never hear back. And so a day later, this agent sent me a thank you, an email. And my advisor swears that he had no communication with them whatsoever. And to this day, I don't know how this happened. It seemed rather suspicious, actually. And yeah. back then I was still thinking I would become a professor. But the job market for professors wasn't great because all of the research labs collapsed. And while I was on the West Coast, I interviewed with Google. 
and started Google. Now they do. What do they do again? <laughs> so back then, that was 2003, Paul. They were a amazing. search engine. In hindsight, right before I started at Google, I was already an avid Google search user just because it was so good. Yeah. But never really expected what Google would turn into in, yeah. in the end. And so I joined in 2003, became one of the very first members of the security teams, and then stayed there for 15 years. And the journey has been quite interesting. I started uh, working on denial of service protection for Google at scale. Then I helped to build the safe browsing project, which I think at this point literally protects over 4 billion devices from web malware and phishing. But mm -hmm. I think for Google, the wake up moment was really Aurora in 2000 when Google was compromised by actors we believe were backed by the Chinese government. Right. And before that, Google already had quite an emphasis on security. Right? It was not that the standards were lax or that we didn't care about it, but that was a wake-up moment like no other. And over the years, we literally grew the security organization to a thousand engineers. Yeah. And I think for a company like Google, probably got to as good as security as you can get in that kind of business, but never really good enough to be able to say, now we are safe from nation-state actors. Nobody can say that. But I think what Google can say is any nation state actor takes a big risk of discovery and public embarrassment. Because you remember in the past, companies would not disclose. Google was one of the very first companies that actually disclosed something like that had happened. And at the end at Google, I managed most of the security engineering teams. The span of problems was quite large from building custom security chips that we put into millions of Google's motherboards to have a trusted root and hardware all the way to building cloud security infrastructure and cloud security products. But Google had gotten too large for me. I think when I left, it was Google proper was, I think, 92,000 full-time employees. Alphabet was 120,000, and now the numbers are even larger. But at that time, Patrick Callison, the CEO of Stripe, was looking for somebody to lead the security organization at Stripe. And my predecessor was Mudge, who I have known for many years. And he said, hey, Niels, I would feel much better if you were to take over from my role, because then I feel like the team would be in good hands. And, and so I was at Stripe for maybe three and a half years. And the goal was really to make Stripe as good in security as you could possibly make it. And so we came up with an incredibly compelling security roadmap, made a lot of progress. And so my claim and this is probably somewhat biased, but if Stripe fully implements that roadmap, their production security is going to be better than Google. Right. Just because we got to learn all of those lessons and it's a much smaller company with less complexity. And so you can get some of these systems just right from the get-go. And so part of the journey, I think I grew this security organization from 30 to 160 people. Also quite a substantial investment. And when I say growing people with security expertise, but mostly people who can actually write software and infrastructure. And I think that is where sort of the challenge is for most companies that they don't know how to get to good security. And there are only very few that know how to do that. And after Stripe, I didn't really quite know what I wanted to do. As the music that I've been working on has been quite entertaining. But I decided to join a startup called Lacework, 
because they really want to build a security platform that leads to better security outcomes for customers. One of your other superhuman powers, Niels, is as a musician, and you perform under the name Activate, and you've created just a, a really interesting body of electronic dance music, cyber-themed. So tell us, are you a musician kind of going back to your childhood, or is this something you got interested in as an adult, or where did this career and where did the focus on EDM start? Yeah, perfect. This is all fairly new to me. But it is rooted in security because, and you and I, when we spoke before, we spoke a little bit about mental health. One of the challenges with being in the scissor role or a head of security role is the stress that gets put on you by the problems that you become responsible for is just incredibly large. And my way of coping with this during COVID was the, I don't have to commute anymore. Is there something that I can do that would both provide reprieve from the stress at work and also be expanding my horizons? And so I started uh, playing electric guitar. And then I figured I should really figure out how to make music. So I took a few classes at Berkeley Online College of Music on producing electronic music. And then everything came together, right? One of the things that I've been bemoaning is the poor state of security in the world. And I've been working on this now for 25 years and they just don't feel it's getting better. And then you read about the scarcity of talent. And then I was like, maybe I can combine all of this. And I decided to produce cybersecurity themed EDM tracks where each track covers some security topics in the hope of being fun to listen to and where people would feel I would like to dance to this, but also where some of the lyrics are maybe, oh, he is talking about social engineering, or he is talking about denial of service and misinformation. Maybe there's something more for us to learn here. And, and so my aspiration with this, Paul, and don't laugh too loud, is sort of use the music to get more people interested in pursuing a career in security and ultimately win a Grammy and then have a platform at the Grammys to talk about the need Cyber for better security. security. Yes, right. Re they're, yes. they're in reaching more people than yes. any administration has <laughs> with their announcements. Yeah. I must say the music itself is really good. How do you like conceive of your songs? Do you start with the music and the kind of groove and beat, or do you start with, I want to do a song about social engineering, which you know. it's the letter. And in okay. some sense, I use a little bit of a brute force approach to music and yep. all of this work, where I basically say, what would be an interesting topic? And with Netrunner was sort of social engineering because inherently we as humans are just vulnerable to it. None of us is safe, right? I, who have spent 25 years in security, am keenly aware of social engineering can be socially engineered. And so then that one, I was a little bit special because we were wondering what is a way in which we could attract even more interest in this. And so we decided maybe we just put it in the cyberpunk universe 
and the track was released roughly at the same time as Cyberpunk 2077 came out with their Phantom Liberty yeah. game, and we, th we thought there might be some more interest. But then um, I have this really great collaborator in Chicago called Jake Lizio, who is a great guitarist and a great teacher, and we have been collaborating together on all of these tracks. But sometimes I would also go to former colleagues at Google and say, hey, we are working on this topic. You want to help with the lyrics? And Ellie Burstein, who is a friend of mine who does deep learning and security, has contributed some of these tracks. But then basically we say, what are the topics that we want to cover? Are there lessons that we want to convey? And then we come up with the, with the lyrics and then we pitch around reference tracks and some musical ideas and then incrementally build it into the finished product. But since I'm just doing this sort of on the weekends and part-time, we easily take six months to complete one track. So you mentioned Netrunner. Let's I I check it out. Okay, so awesome. Watch a video, it's an amazing video. Not surprisingly, she seduces the engineer and manages to plant malware on his systems. Terrible so, stereotype. Actually, you know, sexual attraction, and that is often a, a doorway into a social engineering attacks going, you know, we've seen that via LinkedIn and other venues as well. So yeah, it is a stereotype. And on the other hand, it's also based in reality. So first of all, who's singing there? And Social engineering is a deep and complex topic. So when you came at it, what did you want to make sure you communicated in this song? Yeah, perfect. So the singer is Laura Weinbach from Foxtails Brigade. It's actually uh -huh. a group in the Bay Area. And uh, I got to know her when she was singing and performing at a farmer's market. And they used to have a vocalist <laughs> who were actually met at Berkeley Online on the East Coast. But she dropped from the face of the earth. And for this track, I needed to find a new vocalist and Laura yeah. was this Berkeley College of Music in Boston, not that's UC right. Berkeley that, that, that's Bayer. right. Yes. Yeah. And on the lyrics, I must imagine for like engineers who are also musicians and that's actually not that uncommon to have to fuse these different parts of their brain, right? Like the types of technical problems you work on with lyrics for an EDM song, probably an interesting challenge. Yeah, I, I actually find writing lyrics quite challenging and there's yeah. a lot of back and forth and Netrunner is actually one of the tracks with the least technical lyrics because we wanted to appeal to a broader audience. But we thought the concept of social engineering and the fact that we that you know you made us that you hear what you want to hear and that you act based on what you believe and not what's really going on is something that could probably resonate with lots and lots of people. And the protagonist in this track is actually a homage to Lucy from the Netflix Netrunner show, which yes. I thought was incredibly well, well done, maybe a little bit 
graphic and, and violence. It's basically a really empowered female protagonist, very smart, very savvy, but also sexy, and then knows how to basically get her way. So for software engineers, look, of, of all different genders and backgrounds who are watching this video, what's the message for them? Is it just, hey, watch out, they're going to have, somebody's going to try and hack your brain, basically, or what? You would like to say that there's something <laughs> learnable here, yes, right? Yes. That we can watch this video and say, oh, I'm just falling for the obvious trap and I should just be more cautious and whenever I do something, I should think about it twice, maybe before taking an actual sleep over it. It's all very rational advice and makes a lot of sense. And we have all heard it many times over. But the problem is, as humans, we are not rational, right? We're intrinsically motivated through our emotions. And I think the best thing that we can do there is get much better at self-awareness. Yeah. But I think hopefully some of this is going to stick with people where they see, even in the video, the sequence of semi-plausible events yeah. that leads to the complete shutdown of the power in a city. got another song that I love just called Patch Your Network. Yes. And th that is much more technical in the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Talk about that. What's the message there? And, and how did that one come about? Yeah. So the vision was really imagine you're a security analyst or you're a security engineer in a threat detection team. And it falls upon you to find out and detect and remediate and quickly fix anytime something ends up going wrong. And that is a 24-7 job, right? Only because it's not your work time doesn't mean that the adversaries are not after you. And so it paints a little bit the picture of a really skilled adversary who goes after the network that you're responsible to protect, right? And so some of the lyrics are, I'm scared at night because I'm sleeping and all of my defenses are on their own. And if you watch the music video for that, it has some, it has some Easter eggs and really I can give it away here. It's really inspired by solar winds. Inspired by solar winds. How? In the sense solar winds was compromised by Russians. Incredibly sophisticated group. I think it yeah. took over a year, but I think before Mandy infiltrated the development pipeline, studied how they wrote right. the code. Just incredibly sophisticated, right? And the way that it worked, they compromised the build machine. And they were watching every single build that happened. And when the Orion software was built, they would quickly swap out the source code on the file system and right afterwards put the old one back. Really hard to find, right? And then for the companies who were compromised, 
by that sort of backdoor to Ryan binary, they were super careful there as well, right? They had three different stages of command and control before yeah. anything would even happen yeah. to your network. And, and in that song, it's really about the yes, right? These are these incredibly sophisticated adversaries, right? It, it, the lyrics are, it's not just metaploit you use, your rat is also quiet. And rat here is for remote access Trojan, which basically is how you get the backdoor into somebody's network. And even that, there's hits that you don't find it anymore. One of the things that struck me is like in cybersecurity, there is a lot of tension. There's a lot of you know, adversarial situations. In some ways, it does lend itself to songwriting and, and narrative in ways that, that probably are helpful to you as a composer and as a lyricist. Yeah, my sense is inherently the experience of art and music is an emotional experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I certainly feel that with any of the problems that we are talking about, I can empathize with them, right? I've been in similar situations and have that emotional connection. And hopefully, as I mentioned earlier, hopefully you get more people interested in the, this is a fascinating space. It is acute. It's going to be acute for many years. Maybe I can have a career here and do something to better the world. Final question, and you, you queued it up perfectly. Um, we are at a time when the federal government, in particular CISA under Jen Easterly, is <clears throat> taking a lot more active role in trying to raise awareness and provide guidance and help to both end users, but also to software development organizations around software supply chain security, secure development, secure by design type concepts. But they're doing it the traditional way. They're issuing guidance and guideline documents. Would you recommend that they take a different and more sort of broad-minded approach of maybe trying to reach people, again, through, through dance music or through videos or, and worm their way into developers' brains in a different way? I mean, first of all, I love what CISA is doing. I think what they're doing is great. But yeah. let me tell you a funny story. So at work, people are clearly aware that I'm making this music. And so we have started playing it at the cafe during lunch times to get more people in nice. tune with these security themes. And the CISA is running the cybersecurity review board. And they were very kind and invited me and other people at Lacework to present to the board. And we wrote a pre-brief for them. And in that pre-brief, I basically wrote the the main problem with security is incentives. But another huge problem is the, there is not enough skilled people who know how to do the job. Yeah. And then I was saying, oh, by the way, one of the authors is this unique way of getting more people interested in security. Listen to his tracks in the brief that we print to the CSRB. And for a moment, I was wondering, maybe Caesar is going to make this mandatory listening for all federal employees. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the problem with security is all about incentives. 99% of the problems by which companies get compromised have well-known and well-understood technological solutions. And the problem is just that sort of it's very expensive to get better at security. And in many ways, companies are rational players, mm -hmm. right? They mm -hmm. will do what they feel is right to the business and the customers. Yeah. And if security is really expensive, then the answer is usually I go to my security person and say, hey, if I give you this investment, what can you promise me? Right. And then the security person usually says, I'm going to be raising the security bar. I'm going to be limiting the blast radius. And then the CEO says, can you promise me there's not going to be a security incident? 
And then the security person says, no, I can't promise you that. And then the very rational decision is great. Let's just wait for the next security incident, deal with it then. In the meantime, the resources I promised you, I must put back into the business to get more features and customers. Right. And so I think what CISA is doing is helping with changing some of those incentives by providing very clear guidance, by setting standards on what is acceptable behavior, probably not going far enough. One of the things that I'm sometimes musing about is whether fines for security incidents should just be much larger and maybe insurance should be mandated. And then you can delegate the assessment of companies to insurance companies. Of course, that would require that they are capable and competent as well. And right. one of the things I'm concerned about is the trend that we see to hold CISOs personally liable. I think we saw yeah. that with Solar Winds Joe with Sullivan SEC, yeah. and Uber and now with SolarWinds as well. Yeah. In my mind, that just sets a really poor precedent because if you are in a role that is already not set up to succeed and you do the best that you can, and now you also know you're going to be held personally liable, who wants to take a job like that? Take, yeah. And if you look at other industries, whether it's food production or manufacturing, automotive, we know how to do it, which is you pass laws and regulations that set a high bar, and then you hold organizations to account. And by doing that, you're bending the market in favor of them doing the right thing. But we, software is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's every industry, right? And so it's a much, much higher bar to clear. Uh, and we just don't know how to write secure software. So if I think right. a great example, and I don't know if you are done time-wise, but there's a tangent we could go on that I think is really interesting. Go, let's go on it. <laughs> so I mentioned to you before how we don't know how to measure security. Yeah. And it's very hard to say, here's the amount of investment, what is the security return that I get? And at the same time, we are saying everybody needs to get better at security, right? Your software shouldn't have vulnerabilities or should not be exploitable. I think both iOS and Android are great examples. Another track that I wrote is I'm tracking you. It's basically about ubiquitous spyware and talking about the NSO Pegasus platform, which is basically a commercial product sold to governments across the world that allows you to compromise basically any phone user, right? Giving some government full access to all of your data. And sort of one term in that realm is called a zero-click attack. Mm -hmm. Basically, can I compromise your phone without the user needing to have any kind of interaction, usually by sending a message to a WhatsApp yeah, or iMessage? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's actually a market for these vulnerabilities. And we can look at how expensive they are. And I also know from people who I know who work both at Apple and Google, that there's been an incredible emphasis on making these phones more secure, right? Because the user base is huge and these companies want to be very responsible. So if you look at uh, the cost of a zero-click end-to-end exploit, I think maybe in 2016, $2 million. Then if you forward for a few years, you find that a one-click end-to-end attack runs for $8 million. The latest numbers, I think, as of this year, the fully working end-to-end zero-click attack on iOS or Android runs for $20 million. And so then what is these companies, Google and Apple, have Im immensely focused on increasing security. 
of their phones and the operating system. And it shows, right? These attacks are so much more yes. expensive now. Right. But right. there are going to be new ones. There are. And if, if we could all, if, if, if every device maker could raise the bar so that a zero click on their platform costs $20 million, then we'd be in a much better place. But the the unfortunate truth is it's more the 1111 default password attacks that we're seeing out there, particularly in the sort of consumer device space, right. the IoT space. That bar is set so low. And in essence, like you said, that's because we've more or less left it at the discretion of companies to decide how big a priority security is and not held them accountable for the fallout from that, which is borne by companies and by consumers. Um, that's right. And that's, I think, the other right. problem yeah. with, with all these incentives around this. The costs are all indirect. You that's and right. I bear the cost, so we don't even know about it, right? That's because right. Yeah. Our data gets stolen and misused. Move it. I don't know about you, but I got three sets of letters but for me and my kids from different providers who had been using Move It, healthcare right. providers and stuff like yep. that. So all, all of us had our data stolen multiple times, multiple different people, just because of one right. vulnerability in a managed file transfer app. Yeah. Ouch. It is a sad world we're living in, which is yeah. why we need more people who can help make security better. And better music to listen to while we're doing it. That's right. Exactly. Niels, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or anything you wanted to say I didn't give you a chance to say? I just think we all have to work on continuing to increase the awareness on security and then hopefully get to a place where we can actually take security and privacy as a given. Whereas at the moment, I feel like we all have to individually fight for it to even have a little bit of a chance. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure and hope to we'll talk to you again. again soon. Yeah.